I'm so glad each and every one of you are here. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 41 through 52 this morning. Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 41. And I've got to tell you, there are certain days that I'm always thankful for that happen around my home that if I'm totally honest with you, have very little of anything to do with me and my ability as a dad. And I just got to give credit, most of this has to do with Allie. It's the days that everything in our house runs like a well-oiled machine and everything just goes perfect. Uh, Aren't you thankful for those days? That very rare occasion they happen, but boy, I'm always thankful for them. You know those days that if you're parents in which your kids are clean, the days that their outfits are, well, let's just be honest, that they're, that they're wearing outfits at all. Those are good days, but especially when their outfits coordinate in that wonderful, and when everyone is behaving as they should, especially when the people you're trying to impress are looking. I mean, those are great days. And honestly, though, when those details fall to me, They just rarely happen the way that I want them to happen because a lot of times my, when I do these things, it just doesn't, it just doesn't come off the way that it ought to. That's why when, when I think about when I'm in charge of these details, a lot of times the good housekeeping article that I read that talks about 35 parenting fails that are always funny, how I at least get some solace when I read articles like this. And in that article, it advises that um, as long as no one is hurt in the process, when these parenting fails happen, you can at least laugh about it. The times which you as a dad forgot to put the scissors away, and then you have to say after your kid has gotten a hold of those scissors, don't worry, sweetheart, it'll grow back eventually. (laughs) Or the time that you take your eyes off of your toddler just long enough for that baby to grab mama's nail polish and decide to place salon right in the middle of your den's new carpet and leave the markings 30 minutes before the company is set to arrive. I remember times that I've done these things in my own life when my daughter Sadie was crying endlessly when I thought it would be funny to pick her up and throw her across the swimming pool at a time that she wasn't ready for it. Or the time that it backfired when I offered Paige my coffee as she looked like she was longing for a sip of it, thinking that if only she got a sip of my black coffee, she'd no longer want any, and then all of a sudden she got a taste of it and decided she wanted more. (laughs) I tell you, when I think about my parenting fails and I compare them to Allie's, I always win in that category. I outnumber her three to one. But the important thing to remember in our parenting fails is that we're not perfect and we can't ever keep these things from happening. And when we do make those mistakes as moms and dads, hopefully we learn from them. When you think about parenting fails that you would hope would never get posted on social media, you have to feel like that's how Joseph and Mary must have felt when we read in Luke chapter 2 what happened in verses 41 and 52. Because when you read this text, 
you read about an instant that Jesus got left behind. And we're going to read it in just a moment, but though we read about the details of a parenting fail, I don't want you to miss the force of the trees of the significance of this passage. Because Luke uses this at the end of chapter 2 to end the birth narrative and the story of Jesus' childhood right where it began, as it all began in the temple when Jesus was presented to Simeon and later spoken over by Anna. And whenever you read of this text, you need to understand that this is indeed a pronouncement of the deity of Jesus. It's remarkable insight into knowing that even at the age of 12, Jesus understood that he was the divine son and that God was his father. I love the way that the biblical scholar Leon Morris talks about this text in his commentary. The expression that Jesus uses that I'm about to read when he acknowledges God as being his father, the expression, my father, is noteworthy and has no other parallel in anywhere else in the Bible. The first recorded words of the Messiah are then a recognition of his being in the father's house. And Leon Morris goes on to write, there is a Jewish midrash that speaks of the Messiah as knowing God directly, without any human assistance. And it was a distinction shared by Abraham and by Job and Hezekiah, but Luke is saying more than even these great Old Testament figures. Jesus had a relationship to God that was shared by no other. So you will not find another place in the Bible where God the Father is spoken of more personally than what you find right here in Luke chapter 2, off of the lips of Jesus. There are 14 places in the entirety of the Old Testament that addresses God as Father, but nowhere do you find in the Old Testament anyone dare to address God as my Father. So here we see clearly that Luke intends to help us understand this is a pronouncement text of the deity of Jesus. It reveals a uniqueness that is true of him that is true of no one else. And we need to join with these Jewish teachers that we're going to read about this morning. As these teachers were spending time with Jesus in the temple, it says they were amazed at what they were hearing, that as we read this text, it's right for us to join them in their amazement as we understand his sonship also. But in all of that, I want you to understand even more that when Jesus acknowledges that God is his Father and that he then is the Son of God, the sonship of Jesus means way more than just an acknowledgement of Jesus being the male offspring of God, almost as if there was a time that Jesus did not exist. When we think about Jesus' sonship, it means that Jesus is equal with and one with the Father. It's right for us to meditate on the sonship of Jesus and acknowledge that he is the same as the Father in essence and in nature, in every single way. And all of these details are things we need to think about when we read this text in Luke chapter 2. But there's still a reason for the details around what happened when Jesus got left behind in the temple. And in this passage, I think it shows us the way that we, in our finite, 
sinful imperfection, prone to have parent failings and failings in many other ways, how we are to now interact with the perfection of God's gift of Christ. So think about those things as we read about Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But they began, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. Don't you like that last line? If you're to look back, this text is sandwiched with a similar line back in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. The child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So you have that before we have this text, and now we have, as Luke 2 closes, that Jesus is increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. I love this text. I love that line. And when we think about the takeaway from what I want you to think about and consider today, this is what I want you to think about. We grow in God's favor when we grow in godliness. We're going to see that as we open up this text and we look at it, And I can't think of a better text for us to consider as we're walking into a new year in 2023. How important it is for us to grow in the favor of God by growing in our understanding of how to be godly people who live our lives each day for His glory. And if we're going to do that, let me just show you just three simple things from this text that I hope will be a blessing to you. First, if we're going to grow in God's favor and growing glory, in His in godliness first, let's do so by making worship a priority. You see the priority of worship right here in this text. Do you see what it says in verse 41? Now his parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. We don't have a whole lot of details from the time that Jesus is presented with the gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and when he left to go away from Herod and be protected in Egypt, and then made his way back to Nazareth. But here we have this single text that tells us about Jesus' childhood. And it also tells us a whole lot about the parenting of Joseph and Mary. Did you notice that detail in verse 41? Every single year, they would make their way to Jerusalem for Passover. This was not an easy trek. This was a whole lot harder than what I had to do yesterday when I gathered up my girls in the minivan And we drove out to Carrollton to spend time with my parents on Christmas Day. 
they would go for an 80-mile trek every single year and have to deal with some treacherous journey and, and, and difficulty so they could make their way to Jerusalem as in accordance with the law as every godly man who believed in, in, in the, 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 the need to live their life in a way that glorified God would do. And you had to go to Jerusalem to to worship by expressing by by observing the fast Passover in Jerusalem, and that was the command given to every man in that day. But if you were the wife, it was somewhat optional for you. But if you were a person of great godliness and commitment, it was a journey that your whole family would make. And so it was for Joseph and for Mary. Every year, they would make this nearly three-day journey going from Nazareth to Jerusalem so they could worship and be there to worship during the Passover week, the week that they would set aside time to acknowledge the provision of the Lord on that day in which God rescued them out of slavery and put the blood over the doorpost and protected them from the death angels so that Pharaoh would finally release his people so they could make their way over to the promised land. And the passing over of the death angel the protection of God for his people while the judgment fell on the Egyptians. That is what we have acknowledged in Passover. And every year they would make their way there, and they were committed to being there. So every year they would go. It wasn't something that was even optional for them. This was their habit. And so they would go for Passover. They would stay not only on the Passover day, but notice the detail here. Every year the Feast of the Passover they would go, and they would stay until the Passover had ended. It just shows you the commitment that they had to be faithful to the Lord and to worship in the place where they were called to go and to be. And when we think about how we need to grow in godliness, don't we need to learn from Mary and Joseph how to have that same commitment in our own lives too? To make it our habit and our custom to go to the place the Lord wants us to go and worship with regularity. And this is just important that we do this in our lives too. And just for true, as true as Mary and Joseph, sometimes it's going to be costly. Sometimes it's a commitment of worship that, that we're going to have to make that's a difficult thing to sustain. We live in a culture today that what happens on Sunday is no longer sacred. It oftentimes is very costly to be committed to making it a regular commitment of our lives to be where God wants us to be on Sunday and worshiping him. But we need that. God gave this to us for a reason, the need to gather regularly on the Lord's day. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together so we can stir each other up for love and good works and be faithful to what God has called us to do. So if we're going to grow in favor with the Lord and we're going to grow in godliness, we just need to make a commitment to worship every week. It's something we never grow out of. The longer we live, the more we realize we need it. And when Mary's or when Jesus' parents are doing that and they made it their custom to always go where they needed to be on Passover, is it any surprise that when they find Jesus, they find him exactly where they trained him to go? Make, a worship, make worship a priority. But I also think we learn from Mary and Joseph that we need to make Scripture a priority. 
The feast had ended. They were returning. And Jesus is still there in the temple. We're going to get back to the fact that they overlooked where he was. But it says in verse 44, supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. They went and they looked everywhere for him according to verse 45. And in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers. And do you see what they're doing? Jesus is listening to these teachers and he's asking them questions. And all who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. What an incredible text in verses 46 and 47. When Jesus is left behind, he is there in the temple and he's surrounded by these teachers of the people of Israel. And you'll find it interesting if you study in Luke's gospel. After this mention of teachers being the Jews who are there in the temple, the only other time that you find someone acknowledged as being a teacher is that title is given to John the Baptist in the next chapter, and then eventually it's given to Jesus as Luke calls him a teacher. And no longer do you see someone other than Jesus after Luke 4 given the title of teacher, except we do find it right here. So these teachers are gathered together at the temple. They're all there together acknowledging the Passover and its importance. And you find Jesus taking advantage of the opportunity to glean from and learn and ask questions from these as they are pouring into Jesus and he is taking it all in. And they are amazed at his ability to converse with them. He is asking the right kinds of questions. He's taking the opportunity to learn from them. And where do you think all of this comes from? It's because long before this event in the 12th year of Jesus' life, he was raised in a home in which the Bible and Scripture were foundational to him. How could it be anything other than this? His very father, Joseph, who was given charge to keep, to take care of Jesus in these formative years, is the very one that when he was going to go to divorce his wife quietly, do you remember what he did? When God spoke to him and revealed to him what he ought to do, he listened to the Lord, and he obeyed. When the threat was there for Herod, who was going to try to end the threat of whoever was born that might challenge his throne, when Joseph received the word and the vision from the Lord, he listened to God and he obeyed. Joseph made it a habit to lead his family in this way. When God has spoken, you listen to what God says, and you respond and you do exactly what God has instructed. And this was the rhythm of the home that Jesus was raised in and was nurtured in. And it provided the environment for Jesus to flourish. You know, when I was thinking about this text, I was reminded and was thinking about something I tried to do a few years ago. I live in a family that loves to raise their own vegetables, but somewhere along the lines, I just don't think I got a hold of that trait of a green thumb. And I remember it wasn't too long ago, I was given these wonderful sweet potato plants. It was given to us right at the beginning of the season for them to be grown. And one of our church members, they gave us these plants and said, hey, Jeff, why don't you put these in your yard? And if you give it the right kind of treatment and you tell me some things to do, if you'll let them just grow during the growing season, at the end of this time, after about three months, you're going to have some pretty impressive sweet potatoes. He showed me his. They were humongous. They were like something that you would see in some magazine. And I thought, well, this is going to be great. I'm going to teach the girls so much in it. 
And so I went out to my backyard, and I found the perfect place. And I did what I thought was going to be sufficient to put them in the ground and to give them some good dirt and some good nourishment. And we watered those things. We babied them. We invited our neighbors to come over if we went out of town to make sure they were watered if it was too long without raining. I mean, we did everything we thought we could do. And after three months, I went and I said, girls, it's time for the big reveal. We're going to go dig up our sweet potatoes. And I went and I found those sweet potato plants and I pulled those things up expecting to find these monstrous sweet potatoes we were going to eat with our steak dinner that night. And these little things were so little. They were about this big. There were only about five or six of them. And my girls looked at me and they said, Daddy, where are they? I can hardly see it. And I said, well, I thought I knew what they were doing. And then I looked at it and I said, now, if I'm ever going to do this again, which I've got to tell you, I have yet to have the guts to try. I'm trying to still get over it. But if I ever do it again, there's some things I've got to learn. But the primary thing that I learned from that, you can't just put those plants in some good old Georgia red clay and expect them to do what they ought to do. It's got to be something more than that. And the soil in which those plants grow, it matters. And when are we ever going to understand the same thing is true within our home? When are we ever going to stop and understand that if we're going to pass off the faith to the next generation, then the homes of our lives should be filled with gospel soil in which the roots of our kids can dig deeply and get the nourishment they need so they can flourish and they can grow? When are we going to stop making excuses for ourselves and thinking it's okay to give Jesus an occasional nod and occasionally show up for church. It should be the environment, the air in which we breathe, worship and growth and what's necessary so that our homes are filled and saturated with spiritual, scriptural truth so our kids can truly flourish. We're sending our kids out. and We've not taken the time to raise them and nurture them we found every other reason to give ourselves to every other thing instead of what we need to give them the most. When you think about Joseph and Mary and what they did for Jesus, it wasn't astounding that they found Jesus there doing what they had been teaching him to do, thinking rightly and deeply about the Scripture, asking those wonderful questions, readying him, to step out of the childhood of his being a 12-year-old boy and into the adulthood that he was on the precipice of reaching into. But church, we've got to be committed to that same thing. So we've got to make worship a priority in our homes. The rhythm of the home. Every time Passover came, they would go from the beginning, they would stay till its end, and of course, Jesus is in the temple doing what they had trained him and taught him to do. And when he's there and he gets the opportunity to grow in the scripture that matters so much to Jesus, these foundational things had been given to him by the environment that mom and dad had raised him in. So we too need to make scripture a priority. But there's one last thing I want to encourage you to think about. We got to make transparency a priority too. This is not what you want to have happen, is it? You don't want to go a mile's journey away from your children and realize 
they're not there. You don't want to be the one that has to realize, I've got to go back. I mean, you can understand what happened here. There's all sorts of explanations. What the Scripture says is true. The caravan that they were traveling for safety, they had left Jerusalem to go home. They assumed that Jesus was with his other family members and cousins. They got away from each other, and at the end of the day, assuming he was with them, they gathered together for the evening meal, and they realized Jesus is not here. We've got to go back, and we've got to find him. So that's exactly what they do. They turned around. They realized they made a mistake. When I read this, you know what I'm comforted by? Even in the face of my parenting fails, these are the type of things that happen when we try our best to live our lives faithful to the Lord. But we're not always going to get it all right all the time. They lost Jesus, the one who is the Messiah. He wasn't with them. But I want you to see how they responded. Because they go back, and they look, and they search all of Jerusalem all over. For three days, they look for him. Do you notice what we learn of them? The urgency of which they looked. They lost Jesus. But do you see how they responded? They didn't stop looking until they found him again. And the mark of true faithfulness is not a listing of our successes, the times that we do it right, the culture that we want to breed when we put everything on Facebook and we put everything on social media, the highlights of our day that we want everybody to know, this just shows you that these folks are loving Jesus and they're committed parents. But please hear me. Faithfulness isn't marked by our successes and the listing of those successes. Faithfulness is often marked and true faithfulness is marked by how we respond to our times of failings. So Joseph and Mary, sincere and faithful as how they're raising their children, sincere in how they're caring for Jesus, they acknowledge, yes, we have left him. We so wish we wouldn't have, but we will not rest until we find him again, and they are faithful to go back and do whatever is needed in that situation. So they go back to Jesus. They are looking everywhere for him. And then they finally do find him. I love the exchange. It says in verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? I told you, these are not perfect parents. In mama's distress, she's thinking that Jesus had done something that he shouldn't have. We know that Jesus is sinless. Jesus says to him, why are you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down to them and came to Nazareth, I want you to see this shows us that Jesus all along the way was sinless. He still was submissive to them. Other translations say he still obeyed them. And his mother treasured all of these things up in her heart. I'm just amazed by the example of these families, of these, this mom and this dad, and how it shows us how we ought to live in, in a like way this Christmas season as we think about our own children. But isn't this true that these lessons are for more than just parents? 
is for every one of us who are sinners who need to grow in God's favor as we grow in our godliness. And there's some things we need to learn from Mary and Joseph. We need to keep worship a priority. We need to keep Scripture a priority. We keep transparent living a priority. We're just honest about the times that we blow it. And our success is often found not just when we have wonderful moments that we do everything right, but how we respond to those failings when we do it with urgency, with care, and with love, honest about the times that we mess up and expressing our deep need for God's grace. And you just see this in the example of Mary and Joseph. What an interesting text. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I tell you, as we're thinking about what we are going to need in the coming year, I'm so thankful for Mary and Joseph, the way that they interact in their imperfection with the perfection of Jesus. And I just want to invite you to consider your commitment this Christmas season to think about the coming year. There's so many reasons why the rhythm of worship is something that has been lessened in its importance. But listen, just make a commitment this coming year that while there are things we have to consider about staying safe in a pandemic, we want the worship of the Lord to be a regular rhythm of our lives because we need it. And when we think about how we live each day, that we make sure that we don't let ourselves go a day without the importance of saturating our lives with the Word of God. And that when we mess up, we're so thankful to turn to the Lord in repentance and trust. I just hope that we can live a life of transparency before Him each day. Father, just show us how to live each day this way. And may it all begin with us understanding the centrality of Christ, who this text shows us yet again that He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Father, I pray that as we think about these wonderful lessons that we learn from the imperfection of Mary and Joseph, that, Father, it teaches us how to relate to the perfection of Jesus each day in our own lives. And in Jesus' name we pray.